it breaks down the barrier that everyone's at the same start starting point, right? Whereas no, everyone's not at the same starting point. There are some leaders who, you know, are a two on the scale of one out of 10, but there's others who are at a 0.5. But because you have that title of leader, you don't want to necessarily share that. What is up, People First Leaders? My name is Chris Lin, and I am your advocate and host for the Leading People First podcast, where we are set to transform the workplace. Make sure you are subscribed so you can hear more from awesome leaders around the world on the effect that leadership has on the employee experience. As we are all on our journey as leaders, we need to remember that everyone else is in their own place on their journey. We all move at different paces, in different ways, and we're influenced because of our diverse backgrounds. This is why I spoke with Greg Fontes, who has over 10 years worth of knowledge and experience, challenging and empowering others to be inclusively excellent. He has made it a mission to inspire and impact others to be positive agents of social change in order to create environments where all people matter and belong regardless of identity. Greg is the CEO of The Fontis Experience, a diversity and inclusion firm which focuses on growing leaders and empowering teams and organizations of all sizes. So get ready to grow and let's dive on in. Hey Greg, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to talk to you. And I'm glad, gr- grateful to be here, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, to kick it off, I actually wanted to read you some food for thought that you wrote a while back. And you said, take a few moments and reflect on your life and your current surroundings. No matter what your thoughts may be, do not fall ignorant to the fact that what you see are blessings that God has placed behind you, next to you, and in front of you. God thinks you are worth his blessings, even though, when your actions don't deserve them. So with that... What have you been blessed with recently? Wow. I don't even remember when I, when I said that. You, you pulled that from the archives, man. Um, dude, if there's one thing that I can just, that jumps out to me um, that I'm extremely blessed for, it is for my family. You know, I have been blessed with the recent addition of a beautiful baby girl. Um, and she is six months old um, at the time of this recording. And I'm just grateful because, you know, I, I saw a quote recently that said, every father wants a son, but every father needs a daughter. Right. And I True feel that. like having her is what I needed in my life. She has been truly transformative for me, uh, just from how I embrace her how I play with her now uh how I am it's just I am you know completely just unglued by her and it's just an amazing thing to experience and and be a father and to experience life growing in front of you moment by moment hour by hour and so I am just extremely blessed to have a healthy beautiful baby girl well again congrats my friend um yeah kids especially daughters, I would absolutely say that, you know, with my own daughter as well as don't really realize what they bring to your lives, uh, what your life as a, as a, as a dad, Um, it's Mm -hmm. something truly remarkable. Um, What lessons have come up for you as you've brought her up? I mean, it's still early in her life, but what lessons Mm -hmm. have come up for you where you're like, huh, like that applies not just to fatherhood, but to me as a leader at work or, you know, in your work as a pastor? Yeah, I think for me, it is consistency, right? That is one of the biggest things that, you know, I've learned because I have to 
every time I wake up in the morning and I spend time with her, like that's our time, right? And even throughout the day, as I'm working in whatever context I may be in, recognizing I have to be consistent in my time with her, right? And so, because I don't want to go a full work day without seeing her, especially if I'm here at home, right? You're working from home, you're not really going from place to place. And so making sure that uh, I'm consistent in my time with her, consistent in my play with her, um, consistent in our moments together, right? And so for me, that's been huge, right? To be consistent because I want that to manifest. Sure, yeah, today, you know, I can be that, but I want it to manifest to when she's a teenager, to when she's older, an adult, and an adult. And I want to be consistent for her in everything that I do, not just in time, but in action and in deed. That's beautiful, my friend. Yeah, consistency, not only in leadership, but in fatherhood as well, something that we Mm -hmm. want to strive for. So getting to the heart of the matter of this podcast, what does it mean to you to lead people first? Man, excellent question. What does it mean to lead people first? I think what it means for me to lead people first is to have an understanding of the people, right? And not just an understanding of the people from the context of their work function, right? But to have to to transition into the realm of understanding the various particularities that define them, right? And so what does it mean to lead people, right? It's understanding their who they are from an identity lens, right? You know, understanding the historical implications of that, the modern day implications for that, and what it means for them. And being able to say all of those particularities that exist within you matter. All of those things belong. And so what does that look like? If, if, I'm, if I'm working with with, with you, Chris, you know, understanding, well, what is your identity, right? What have been the historical stereotypes and implications, positive and negative? How does that impact you today? And then saying, I accept all of that. And I want to you to know that as I lead, as we work together, as we partner, that all of that matters. All of it belongs. And for me, that's what it means to lead people is to lead with an awareness of who they are historically, modernly, uh, how they are, how they intersect with me historically, presently, all of that, all of that. That's, that's what it means for me to lead people. That's beautiful, man. Um, you know, again, really thinking about the, everything that that person is, who they are, who they have been in the past and who they may Mm -hmm. become, right really thinking about and encapsulating all of that and, and taking all of that into consideration when you work with them and when you build a relationship. Um, you know, we're very far past the time when it is, you know, you are who you are at home. You are who you are at work. We are so far past that, especially in this last year when the lines have absolutely become blurred and not even blurred, they're just crossing over like crazy. So absolutely. We, we have to consider all of those things. Yeah. And you can't separate those things at all. You know, you're absolutely correct. You know, I think of me in my context, I am a a black male, like in the workspace, I feel that. I feel my blackness, right? And just using me as an example, I feel my blackness. I feel it in particular spaces. But then when I leave the workspace and I go out into the grocery stores, I go out into the, you know, the malls or restaurants, I'm still a black man. And so those those same underpinnings that I felt within the workspace, I feel it outside of the workspace. And so it would not be... Uh, in my opinion, it wouldn't be the greatest leadership uh, uh, perspective and lens to separate those things, whereas your constituency base, me, I can't separate it myself, 
right? And so, for, so you're absolutely right. Where those days of separating are far gone. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to share some praise from your good friend, Pierre Quinn, who said, I could easily work for a leader like Greg. The strategist in Greg allows him to investigate and navigate problems from different angles. Greg's high degree of emotional intelligence allows him to easily read rooms and connect to the hearts of the people. He doesn't shy away from tough conversations and tough calls. Greg positively impacts each organization he partners with. So again, when you think about, you know, you know, uh, leading people first and making that impact, that's something that absolutely those around you think that you do. And your work in diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is huge. Uh, you're a pastor, right? You're a husband, a father, and it seems like you fought for other people's livelihoods your entire life. So where did you really learn this lesson of leading people first and, and really prioritizing people over and everything else? Yeah. And that, that came from my upbringing, my the context in which, you know, I was, I was born and raised in. And so, you know, a little bit about me, I'm originally from Miami, Florida, but I am of Haitian descent. Right. And so my parents, and I'm the only one in my immediate family to be born in the States. And so that taught me two things, being a uh, part of the Haitian American community, as well as growing up in Miami, Florida, right? If you've ever been to Miami, Florida, it's a place, a mosaic of cultures and community. It is a place where they celebrate various foods and fest festivals and, and music, all of those things. And so from one lens, I grew up understanding and appreciating cultures and communities and being able to acknowledge and celebrate them. But then the sheer fact that I was the only person in my immediate family born in the States, I had to see my family uh, gaining citizenships and they go through that process to become a citizen in this country, as well as my external family, you know, cousins, et cetera, uh, having to go through that same process. And for me, I learned about equity in that lens, right? I learned about, hey, if we're gonna be a part of this country, right? We need to hold it accountable to its laws that said it's a place of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That, you know, there is this quote unquote American dream that exists. And so for me, those two ideas of equity and fighting and holding systems accountable, that will end, as well as celebration of communities and cultures, those were the two lenses that I see things through. And then as I matriculated throughout life, you know, and I actually went to seminary and studied theology and all of that stuff that then brought a third lens of ethics and morality, right? And understanding the ideals of justice in community. And it was those three ideas that shaped how I view things, that shapes the fight, that shapes and how I lead, that shapes in, in how I love and how I experience community uh, and my desire for what this all means um, for us. And so, so for me, it was, all, it was a combination of my upbringing as well as even my uh, theological training that shapes why I do this work and how I even lead people. Yeah, so looking at how, how it shapes your work and taking that into the workspaces, you know, again, when you look at that lens of equity and bringing in multiple cultures and backgrounds and theology, where do you see that intersection happening or influencing the workspace? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think all of those different lenses are at the heartbeat of the workplace, if, if I'm being honest in my, in my estimation, right? Because in the workspace, it's not just 
numbers that are operating and, and working. It's people, it's identities, it's experiences, it's culture, it's history that is shaping all of those things, right? And so when you're in the workspace, you recognize that no one person can do it alone, that it is actually a community of people that are coming together to produce something, right? And for me, I don't want to just know what you produce. I want to know who you are and what, and, and because when you build those authentic relationships that allows for greater productivity, greater success, right? As we see, you know, you can look at DEI reports and all of those things. It, it, it equates to greater success. And so for one, if I celebrate the culture and if I appreciate that, that first breaks down any ice and any barrier that may exist in the workspace. When it then comes to equity, it's the idea that, hey, everyone who's a part of this community should have equal say. They should have equal access, right? I recognize positionalities. I recognize org charts and hierarchies and all of those things. I recognize that. But at the same time, if I'm going to be under the umbrella of a particular organization, I should have the rights and privileges. So when I think about my parents and my siblings who, and my family members who had to gain citizenship into this country, I recognize that, hey, once they got citizenship, they had rights and accesses to vote. They had rights and accesses to different places that they can go to. They can apply for jobs and all of these things. They were not barred by their identity. The workplace is that same space. How can we create an environment to where individuals can have access to whatever they need to? Opportunities for advancement, opportunities for pay increase, opportunities for collateral and leadership assignments, et cetera, et cetera. That's that place. And then the justice piece you know, that came from the theological training is really holding that space accountable to that. It's holding the space accountable to being able to, to uh, uh, promote people, to be able to celebrate people, to be able to have equitable spaces and environments. That's that in the workplace. So in the workplace, you have to celebrate people because that they're people. That's who you have there. But you also have to be equitable and making sure that people have equitable opportunities throughout. And then you hold it accountable. You hold the system, you hold the structure accountable. And if it needs a to be rewritten, if it needs to be destroyed and reconstructed, then we're going to do that. And, I, and I'll end my answer with this one point. When I was in, you know, as I was in my theological education, you know, one of the things that I learned was that when I entered into seminary, one of the things that they, they, they sought to do was they sought to deconstruct your own way of thinking right, in order to reconstruct something that's beneficial for everybody, mm -hmm. right? And that same mindset should be in the workspace. That's the same way I operate when I'm in a, you know, leading a DEI initiative at an organization or even in my own practice. I'm here to deconstruct what's currently there and reconstruct it in a way that's beneficial for all parties, right? It is a tall task, right? It doesn't, does it need multiple revisions? Absolutely. But I think when, you, when I have that mindset, um, it, it leads to greater satisfaction. It leads to greater productivity. It leads to that inclusive environment of belonging where everyone matters and belongs in that space. What, what you're saying right now is, is it's recalling a conversation that I was just in yesterday, actually, about um, reform and abolition, right, of our mm. systems, right? When we, when we look at the, you know, I'll, I'll try to, I'm not an expert in this, so I'll try to reiterate uh, what I heard. But when we look at things like reform, right, it's uh, redesigning essentially systems that um, 
had unintended consequences and we need to make revisions to them because they were, you know, we, they had some negative or certain consequences that we didn't intend and we need to fix them. Right. And so that's reform. Uh, so when we talk about things like police reform, that's what we're talking about. Right. Uh, but when we talk about abolition, it's tearing down a system that was purposely designed to benefit one group or another and has negative consequences on, on others. So when you look at organizations, then, I mean, do you think we, we need to do a full teardown because they were purposely designed to benefit one group or another? Or do you think it's, you know, there were a lot of unconscious biases that were, you know, that uh, essentially influenced those systems and, and we just need to reform and, and revise? Yeah, man, that's a hard question. <laughs> that's a hard <laughs> question, uh, and, and I'm not I'm not skirting an answer, but my my answer is a both and, right? Because we can destruct uh, and we can blow up, deconstruct a system in its entirety, and then say let's reconstruct it. But then the question that I have is who is doing the reconstructing, right? Because if, if I look at it. it contingent upon who is reconstructing it, it may be reconstructed in a way that is still marginalizing a groups of people, right? And so Absolutely. I can't, so to deconstruct, to reconstruct, there has to be, it's more about who is on the front lines actually doing the reconstructing or who is the ones that is taking the system that currently is and making its modifications and, 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 and revisions, right? And so we got to get that part right. Right. And I think once we get the right people in place, I think either or can work. Right. There can be a recon, uh, deconstruction and there can be revisions. I think that revisions are actually much easier, although longer. Right. Simply because, you know, you have to you've got to know the system first in order to, to, to move things around and, and make those structural differences. The, the deconstruction probably would have a greater immediate impact but the challenge behind that is whether or not an organization is willing to put a pause on their on their um, deliverables whether they're willing to put a pause on their financial uh, gains in the moment whether or not they're willing to make a bold move like that right because to deconstruct you will have to stop everything in order to do that i believe um, and so it's really a matter of where does that organization want to go Right. I would probably side on more of the side of deconstructing because I think that can have greater implications. Revisions, the challenge with that is the revisions come at the beck and call of the leadership, right? The leaders that are at play. So if it's the leaders that are saying, hey, you know, we want to revise our practices, we want to revise our policies. However, let's only do this one, this one, and this one. Sure, we've revised the system, we've revised the structure, but at the end of the day, you still have 70% that's still unethical, that's still uh, uh, oppressive, right? Yeah. And so we got to get to the point where we first ask that question of who's the one doing the changes, right? Whether it's a full reconstruction or revision, but then we also got to ask the question of how far are we willing to do go? Yeah. We, we have a, a long way to go in all of our systems, all of our organizations, and you, you said it really well. Um, I, I haven't yet met an organization that has taken that, you know, blow it up approach, you know, tear it completely down and, and rebuild it. And it doesn't have to necessarily, and you know, when I'm thinking about that, you know, it sounds like I'm saying the entire organization has to like 
deconstruct and reconstruct. No, you can actually do it piece by piece, right? You can do it, mm. you know, within a department or you can do it within certain processes. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, when we sit, when it, at least in my head, when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about like an entire organization, but it doesn't have to be that yeah. way. So um, just, I just want to make that clear. Um, but yeah. I want and, to- And let, let, let oh, me yeah, interject right it. there, yeah, you yeah. Know, which I think is important. Um, I think the piece by piece part, I'm a fan of that, right? I think that can potentially, that, that can work. The problem that I've seen though, is that because the people are still not being treated effectively and appropriately, people are leaving, right? There's, there's a lot of, 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 we have retention issues, right? For people who are doing this work, right? Because burnout is real for people doing this work. And so the challenge that, that exists is that, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to redo it. I'm going to, I'm going to build one part of the company of the organization, but then people leave. Right, because the onus to, to rebuild is on them. And so what you're doing is by at every part that you're rebuilding, you have to start all over again. Unless you have a strategy that is in place, a long-term strategy that is in place that is explicit, and you have key people that are in place and they're being compensated, not just financially, but compensated mentally, right? To be able to go in and do the work effectively. So so yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Like piece by piece, I think it can happen really well. I think the challenge is making sure that as it's happening, people are being retained and people are, are still present and active with the organization. Retention is so, is so tricky, especially in times of change because people hate change. I mean, it, it you know, even yeah. if it's not around yeah. diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, you know, all of those things just people hate change. And especially if you're talking about changing the way that someone works, I mean, you know, you're going to be going in for a grind, right. No matter who you yeah. are. So yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I want to share another piece of praise from Jessica Ganzi, who said, I met Greg during our time at Vanderbilt studying for a master of divinity degree. From the beginning, he has been an exceptional scholar and dependable friend. Greg has dedicated his life to the building and flourishing of people and uses his strengths and talents to aid in their uplift. I am proud to be a friend and co-laborer with such a bold and dynamic trailblazer. And so I would absolutely say, right, you, you're blazing those trails, my friend, because you are really putting in the work and helping other organizations and leaders really figure out what they need to do to fix their systems, to really bring equity into their organizations. And I heard you talk about one, one topic that I thought was really interesting, right? Was uh, how oppressors tend to push off the burden of working on systemic injustices and in inequalities back onto those who have actually been marginalized and oppressed, right? Mm -hmm. And so this lack of responsibility is what I, I think is this ultimate issue that we have as society as a whole. Like, they are not fully buying into this. They don't want to put in the work or they don't think it's their responsibility. So how have you either, how have you done that where you get leaders in organizations to come to terms with their responsibility of fixing those systems and biases that are alive in their companies? <laughs> That's an age old question, my friend. <laughs> that is a hard one to do um, because there's so many different layers to that, right? There's the layer of leaders not even thinking there is a problem within their organization. There's the layer of, of putting the responsibility on a DEI 
director, manager, or leader, right? As opposed, because they believe that diversity is a position rather than it is a practice throughout, right? Um, there is the lack of exposure or by lack of exposure is because I'm in this senior role or this leadership role, I don't have to worry about you know, these quote unquote trivial matters, right? So there's so many layers that one has to unpack uh, when you get to that point. For me, it's been really about wanting to, uh, you know, learning the language of them, right? You know, and, you know, if I, if I use the language that I used in that statement, you know, it's kind of learning the language of your oppressors, right? Learning how they speak, learning what they do. Because I think when you're able to do that, then you're able to communicate the injustices in a language they understand, right? And so being, being um, there, you know, uh, if I'm in a tech space, you know, as I worked in tech companies, okay, if I understand how my, uh, my leaders of, of product or my leaders of marketing uh, or my leaders of, 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 you know, HR thinks and speaks, then I'm able to communicate things in their language that they understand, right? And so when I'm able to communicate in, things, in ways they understand, that hits a little bit differently, right? They're able to digest it a little bit differently. Uh, and then I'm able to work that. Another area I've been able to, to, way I've been able to do that is really by building rapport and relationships with people, right? I think that being able to, to come into a space really model what I would hope for them to do to others, right? Getting to know who they are, what are their experiences? What are your identities, right? And then being able to connect and intersect my experience of, of being oppressed to their experience, of course, not to the, the same magnitude, obviously, but to, 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 to peak something in their heart, to peak something in their consciousness to where they get an awareness about, oh, wow, there is an experience of hurt that we can relate to, that I can relate to. Right. And so and then there's an the element of, you know, sometimes being able to navigate those political waters. You know, I, I've been in positions where, you know, navigating the politics of, a, of an organization um, has fallen in my favor. Right. To be able to navigate um, how I communicate, when I communicate, when I bring something up, how I bring something up. Uh, all of those things have have been helpful Um for me to, to communicate with those leaders, for them to eventually get to a point where they buy in, right? Yeah. Sometimes it, it takes longer than others. Um, sometimes they, they get it quicker, right? And sometimes, you know, many of them may have a, uh, you know, have a desire for inclusive environments, but it's more of a performative way. It's being able to understand those politics and being able to leverage them to be able to get movement within an organization. Getting that movement is so, it's so, so difficult, but I, I, mm -hmm. I have to applaud you for all that work that you've done. The thing that I, you know, I try to encourage others who are in this space, mm -hmm. but I also find very frustrating myself is the need for us to have to cross the bridge and go to them, right? We're always having to go to the other side to then try and bring them over and convince them to, what we are trying to do rather than meeting halfway. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right. Like we're mm -hmm. always having to like say, Hey, let me go to you. Let me adopt your language. So you can understand what I'm saying rather than, Hey, let's meet in the middle and figure out a good way to move forward. And that's something again, that I think is, is very frustrating, but something that I think we have to encourage everyone in this space to do because we have to, um, it's hard work. It's, it's hard work, but that's, what's necessary in this space. Yeah. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Like this, this work is not for the, you know, the faint, you know, this work is, is, is there, there must be persistence. There must be a, a level of relentlessness um, and, 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 and a level of hope to where you recognize that all I'm doing is not in vain. Right. For me, one of the things that was, I've been able to, that's been able, that's been helpful for me as I've navigated this is being able to, to be very mission driven, right. And, and to be in a place where I'm mission driven to the point where I know what I want to achieve and I have to go at it. Right. And I recognize that it's harder for me, right. Because I'm of a, of a historically marginalized identity, it's harder for me to, to, to be able to get an in, in institute change, but I have to recognize that it's going to take a while. And one of the things I've had to learn throughout my career is that I can't not expect everything to happen in one week. I can't come in with a list of demands and say, this needs to change right now and expect it to change. No, I recognize I'm, I'm in the long run, right? You think about, um, you know, someone who goes to, to college, right? You spend four years developing in college to prepare you for, quote unquote, the real world or or to prepare you for uh, uh, post uh, graduate education. Right. You spend four years of development. Right. The same concept can be applied to this work of DNI. Right. What can I achieve in four years? Right. What four years of development that I can achieve? Right. Because you, you, if you remember your college experience, I don't remember mine. I came in as a first freshman, wet behind the ears, didn't even know what I was doing. Sophomore, I thought I was a little bit tougher, a little bit cooler, a little bit more intellectual. Junior year was where you really start understanding your purpose and really what you want to do. By senior year, you're rolling. Right. You know yeah. how to navigate this environment. Right. That same concept, right? You come in, what is your four-year process? What is your four-year strategy, right? How do you get to that point from point A to Z, right? Yeah. And so I think we have to recognize that it's not going to take us, we're not going to obtain a four-year degree in one week. No, right? It's going to take some time for us to get there. And, I, and, I, and so I enter that long approach. For sure, for sure, and I have to, I have to say that long approach is something you've you've talked about for a really long time. Um, it's just funny. I, I wrote this quote down that you wrote, uh, that you shared, I think, like seven or eight years ago, and it said, mm -hmm. "In a culture that avidly avoids pain, we gravitate toward one-minute theology and microwaved spirituality." And so, I just wanted to share that because that's something that you've been, <laughs> you've clearly been been living and, and saying for a very long time. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, you know, when we when we look at um, all of these issues that we have that are facing us in this space, um, you know, you've talked numerous times about how organizations and leaders need to move away from being this like reactionary stance or have mm. this reactionary stance and become more proactive or culturally relevant. Right. And like you said, you just said a lot of these things take time, like having conversations, right. These mm -hmm. conversations between us, you and me, these conversations mm -hmm. between you and the, the group that you're trying to influence, it, it takes mm -hmm. so, so much time. And I think that coaching is something that is, is necessary because we have to help mm -hmm. people self-actualize in these moments. Mm -hmm. So how do you think coaching can create a more positive, inclusive, and empathetic employee experience? Yeah, I think coaching is is critical, right? Because coaching allows and, and, our, and what, I, what I'm referencing right now is one on one coaching. I think with one on one coaching, it personalizes it, 
right? And it gives the attention needed to do the work, right? I think there's times where we come in in the group setting and there's time and place for the group setting because the group setting allows for conversation, meaningful dialogue, fearless dialogue to exist. Perfect place for that. And I, and I think there's, there's value in that, right? Because you, you get exposed to different experiences. Coaching allows for there to be an unpacking of self in a more intimate way that allows for their, the vulnerability of that leader to be shared and to be br- brought out in a very in a, in, a, in a very intimate yet confidential setting, right? So with coaching, you're able to pinpoint and identify what are the challenges that exist with you as it relates to being, le- being a leader who leads with, cultural, with a lens of cultural consciousness. And then let's work towards that. Let's build off of that, right? Yeah. Because with coaching, it breaks down the barrier that everyone's at the same start, starting point, right? Whereas, no, everyone's not at the same starting point. There are some leaders who you know, are a two on the scale of one out of 10, but there's others who are at a, at a 0.5, right? But because you have that title of leader, you don't want to necessarily share that, right? So we got to get to that point where, well, I, so I believe that, that coaching allows for us to do that really deep work, right? In, a, in sort of a, you know, I would translate it to a, not as the, to the magnitude and nor do I want to, am I seeking to devalue the practice of therapy, but, you know, if you go to therapy, you have these lessons, right? Therapy is a form of coaching, you know, individuals to have more confidence, to identify what are some of the challenges and issues that, that exist, expose those things and give one and empower one and give them the confidence to be able to go and face whatever challenge they're facing. Coaching has that same impact, right? I can go into a conversation, we can deal with what are some of those, those issues are, and then we can we can build and we can get better. So I think coaching is 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 needed. I think if more leaders in companies and organizations received coaching, our companies would be so much better. Yeah, so much better because one of the things we fail to do is we don't onboard leaders. We don't. Yep. Like you come into an organization, you're a junior level employee. You'll go through this week of onboarding. You'll meet all of these people, and then you'll learn your role, and then you 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 flow right. Leadership, oh no, we're hiring you to be an SVP. We're, we're hiring you to be a chief officer. Oh no, we're expecting you to know what you're doing. So you come in and now you're managing a team or a department or a division of, of, of 75, 100 plus 3,000 people and you have no idea how to even manage people. Yeah. Right? That's, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster right there. Yeah. We don't onboard those leaders. We don't prepare them for their roles. We expect them, oh, you did a good job as as a manager, yeah, let's make you a director and manage this team of people when you've never managed someone before. So that's a recipe for disaster. And I think coaching helps to, to, to shorten that gap, right? And, and to help with that learning curve that is needed for there to be better leadership within companies and organizations. I, I am very much on, on the boat of every leader or at least every manager needs to go through coaching training. Right. Mm -hmm. Every every manager needs to learn how to coach because that in turn makes them a better leader for their team. And so if you build that into your programs, you can get a lot better results because you'll again, you'll allow your team to self-actualize. And and it takes a great leader to be able to properly coach their employees. And that's again, that's a skill that we don't teach. Right. And Mm -hmm. I want to share another bit of praise from Morgan Allison, who said, Greg is someone who is a strong leader and is an amazing pillar to lean on. 
His ability to balance everything is an inspiration. I enjoy seeing his growth, even from a distance and appreciate his place in my journey. So again, your leadership is something that, you know, people recognize and, and this journey that all leaders have to go on is something that we, you know, it, it's not like you all of a sudden one day become a great leader. Like these are all skills mm-hmm. and things that you have to practice. Yeah. And Absolutely. I want to, I, I want to talk about, you know, today, you know, it's, you know, towards the end of February, 2021. And we're dealing with a lot of things in our society right now. And one of your mentors told you that it's never not war, right? Meaning that mm-hmm. there's always a cause to fight for. And with the increase in acts of violence against the Asian Pacific Islander community in this last year, I found that a lot of the Asian community is in shock. They're numb because they don't know what to do. Historically, the Asian Pacific Islander community has been told to keep our heads down, right? And to just work through it. For you, you know, as you, as, because you identify as a black man, what have you learned in your experience that you might be able to pass on to the Asian community on what to do next and what action they can take? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a heavy one. I, you know, I thought the other ones was pretty hard. No, this this one is is, is a tough one, um, because I'm I'm personally still wrestling through it, right? Now I'm 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 still getting to that point where 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 as a black man, you know, I can deal with it. Right. And so, but I think what I'm doing is what I would share is, is take care of yourself, you know, um, do the healing that you need for yourself. Right. Because um, unfortunately we live in a, a community, a society, a, a country that um, no one is exempt from this. Right. And, and that's the idea behind that statement of it's never not war. There's always something coming up. If it's not you now, you might be next. And if you're not next, you, you're, you're somewhere in the line. And it's a cyclical cycle. It's a cyclical effect that happens to where you're always there. And I think when you begin to, to take pride and you begin to embrace who you are, there's always a dissenter who will seek to, to, to disrupt that flow. And so for me, what I would share with, with, you know, my, my, my colleagues and friends and, and, and family of the, you know, Asian, Asian American community, uh, heal, right? First heal, right? Because the shock is something that can be generational shock, right? And it can be a shock that not just only impacts you, but it can impact your family. It can impact how you see yourself. Um, and so I say heal because healing allows, healing allows for there to be a disruption of the, of the negative representations that are being promoted right now, right? The, the rhetoric that's being stated, right? The, 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 the negativity that's, that's always being shared, like all of that that's being pushed towards this community can be embraced, right? And, 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 and actualized. And what I'm saying is no, you are the definers of your identity. You are the definers of your culture and your community, regardless of if whether or not you ever stepped a foot, you know, in an Asian community, country or not. That is part of your history. That is part of who you are. So therefore, heal to the point where, where, who, you, where who you identify is not something of shame or guilt, but it's something of pride and something of joy. 
And then you operate in that healed feeling. You operate in the space of, of, of pride, of, of, of love and commitment, as opposed to operating in a space of hurt, right? Because if you operate in, this is my belief, and this is part of that, that theological, that, that pastor ministering me coming out is, is when we operate in a space of hurt, it's harder to heal from that, that way. It's harder to embrace others. It's harder to, to represent what you're trying to say. It's harder to, to, to operate in a, in a, in a lane, in a, in a, in a spirit of authenticity and, and, and community when you're hurt. Right. So you got to take care of yourself, right? Because at the end of the day, you were the victim, right? You're not subjected to the other side until you're not subjected to that. You don't have to, 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 to move based upon what someone else says. You were the victim. You're the one who are traumatized. You're the one who was hurt. Find your healing first, center yourself. When you center yourself and you found that healing, albeit individually or as a community, then you move forward. You move forward out of that, knowing that you're empowered in who you are, knowing that who you are does matter, knowing that who you are is truly that which belongs, knowing that who you are is important to our community. It is important to our history. It is important to our future and our next generations. When you find that healing, when you find that reprieve amongst yourself, operate in that. And then I believe the outcome can be better and greater and more fulfilling. That's absolutely beautiful, my friend. Um, yeah, we, healing will allow us to, to make, have that clarity to move forward in, in the proper steps and, and to be able to, you know, honestly, for me, is something for me that I continuously think of is forgiveness, right? Is, mm-hmm. is getting to that forgiveness and making the right moves from there. Um, and taking as much time as you need to heal, right? I don't, I don't think there's a timetable to what healing looks like. Yeah. Um, and and embrace, your, embrace the process of what that healing looks like. That healing may be angry, anger someday. That's part of the process. It may be sadness. That's part of the process. As long as there's movement, towards healing movement towards the collective whole that's what's important right as long as we get better and we have those steps where we take a couple of days where we can take a couple of steps back that's all right but i think the, the the it's a process that we have to be embrace and embody and, and and consistently tell ourselves we're gonna get to that place of healing that that i will not accept how i've been defined by others and i'm not going to accept you know, being the oppressed, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, it's all politics. It's all politics of race, politics of blackness, politics of Asian, being Asian American. All of it is politics that we have that the progenitors of race constructed and imposed upon these people, on people of, of different identities, right? It, it's, we, we, we are not to accept that. Yeah, we, we can't accept that at all. And, and, and again, we, um, if we can keep moving forward, right? It's, uh, it's the best way to the best thing for, for not just us, but for all of those around us, uh, Greg, I want to, I want to thank you. I do want to ask one last question, uh, before you Mm. go, what is the impact that you want to have on those that you lead? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the impact that I want to have on those that I lead, I want them to know that Greg cared that Greg was one who fought and advocated for others, that Greg was selfless. Even if Greg fought and lost many battles, right? They knew that I was someone in their corner, 
They knew that I was someone that um, would go to war for them, regardless of, of, like I said, if I lost the battle or if I did, if I went and I didn't get the movement or the desired outcome, at the end of the day, they know that I was there in the trenches with them because I knew that they mattered and they belonged. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for doing that. Thank you for all the work that you, uh, that you are doing. Um, I want to leave you with one final note from Yvonne Alston who said, I am literally a smarter person for knowing Greg and more in tune with the spirit that dwells within me. Thanks to his giftings in the most unobtrusive way. Greg has a way of seeing you beyond how you see yourself and challenges you inspires you to come each day as the highest version of yourself. And he believes that each day you have the ability to go higher than the day before. He is both solid in heart, passion, and craft. I learn from him every, from him during every interaction and I'm a bitter human for it. So again, I think you are making that impact. You are uh, showing that you are fighting for others. So thank you again for, for doing all the work that you do. Um, you know, final thing, what would you like those of uh, those who are listening right now, what would you like them to do next? Go higher, go higher. You know, you can, you will, and you shall, you know, I want you to know that, that you are a change maker, that you can make a change, that you are making a change simply by listening to this podcast and other episodes, right? You are challenging yourself to be better in thought and with thought will lead to action, which will lead to community change and will lead to a desired outcome that we're all hoping for. So for me, that's, that's what I want everyone to do. Just be higher. Beautiful. Well, Greg, thank you again. And uh, we'll, we'll talk very soon. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the leading people first podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and could take Greg's wisdom, no matter where you are in your own journey. We are all working towards a positive employee experience through diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. So make sure you reach out to Greg if you would like to learn more. If you like this episode, click subscribe and hit the share button to send it to someone who needs to hear more about Greg's work. Let's keep this conversation going by telling me what you learned or loved from this episode on LinkedIn or Instagram. Thank you again for tuning in. Keep leading people first and stay awesome.